Cherry Developer News, episode number 61. It's a JavaScript and iOS world out there, and the NSA is looking. I'm Ken Rimple. Welcome to the Cherry Developer News, a weekly roundup of tech news items and articles of note. We're serving up a healthy helping of articles this week, mostly around iOS, including new Safari bugs, hands-on by Joel, lock screen bugs, fingerprint scanner trickery, and four privacy settings that ZDNet says you should enable immediately. We also talk about two JavaScript topics, an Angular project called Angular Sprout on GitHub, and jQuery 1.11 is here, and it still supports IE6 and above. Yikes. Plus our typical privacy and security rants, and information about the upcoming Valve OS. It's all right here on the Developer News. Got a day left to do a field trip and want to learn more about the latest trends in large-scale data processing, analysis, and techniques? Come to downtown Philadelphia on October 30th to our Data IO show. We'll have talks on subjects such as Hadoop, HBase, Neo4j's Graph Database, scientific processing with Python's NumPy and SciPy, and much more. See the emerging generation of large-scale, high-volume data processing analysis and meet the leaders who are making it happen today. That's October 30th at the Sierra Center in Philadelphia. Tickets are only 80 bucks. Sign up at mergingtech.chariotsolutions.com slash dataio2013. The developer news is sponsored by Hadle. Want to increase your team's productivity? Try Hadle. It's a question and answer system that lets people ask, answer, and rate questions. Internal company information gets hard to find, lives in emails, or only in experts' heads. Stop the repetitive question and answer sessions on topics they've already covered. Share that information with Hadle. It's like a private stack overflow or Yahoo Answers site for your own company. More information, including a free trial, at hadle.com. That's H-A-Y-D-L-E.com. And by Chariot Solutions Education Services. Public and private training and mentoring in subjects such as Spring, Maven, Scala, Grails, Android, and more. Inquire about private tech training by the developers who bring you this podcast, fill the emerging technologies for the enterprise, and much more. We only teach the things we do. Visit us online at chariotsolutions.com slash education. Now on to the developer news. Hey everybody, Chariot Developer News, episode, is it 61? My gosh, episode 61 for Wednesday, because we're running late, September 25th, 2013. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sue John Capadia. I'm Joel Confino. And we got a lot of stuff to cover, so we're just going to jump right into it. Um, lead story, um, Java 8 is still becoming Java 8 as we speak, and it might actually finally have grown up enough to become the real Java 8. The uh, JDK 8 Lambda spec uh, is in final draft. Which means that they're actually, I guess, going to code it. <laughs> actually, I think there is a, a, a release candidate version out there now of Java JDK 8 that has this stuff in it. There is. Um, and so Brian Getz uh, has done a number of papers about the state of Lambda so that the article is State of the Lambda Final Edition, so to speak. And I found this on the uh, cr.openjdk.java.net site. And it goes in and it talks about uh, the OpenJDK Lambda project. Um, do either of you want to take a crack at what Lambda means for Java for people who don't know? So um, basically, it boils down to closures. Yep. And it's functional basically... Functional programming. Yeah, functional programming closures. is giving you some of the functionality that Groovy sort of did, but sort of behind the scenes and, like, you know, faked it out. And then Scala and other functional programming languages sort of give you outright. Mm-hmm. It's finally, finally coming into Java 8 after we've been talking about it for years. So I do feel it's a little late to the game and... I think there's still a lot of people out there that are not happy with what aspects of it have been implemented into Java. But it's definitely going to make 
for a lot cleaner code and much, much cleaner libraries and frameworks. And we're going to see lots of updates to existing frameworks and libraries to take advantage of it. So that'll be cool. Yeah, I would agree. And actually, if you read this paper, I think every Java developer should read this paper before they touch Java 8 because it's going to be one of those things that will simplify your code, like you're saying. Um, one of the most direct things they've done is any of the interfaces that you use for callbacks that generally have one method, like uh, action listener, mm -hmm. right? If you're a Java developer um, and you have an action listener, you can kind of have it wired up to be notified when something happens uh, and be sent an event. So, um, you know, normally you would do basically like a new action listener in line, like an inner class. And so that resulted in bulky syntax. And that's a perfect example of what you could use a closure for. Just drop a block of code in there uh, and just go ahead and run the closure instead. So what they're doing now is they're, they're basically treating those single function interfaces as a functional interface. Um, and so it's automatic. You don't have to do anything special. Um, so this is in section two of his document. It says, nothing special needs to be done to declare an interface as functional. The compiler identifies this as such based on its structure. Um, and so then you can just basically write a closure syntax around it and you know, pass methods in by position. So pretty nice, um, you know, pretty close to what we've seen in other languages. But it automatically makes all of those interfaces available through closures, which I think is a benefit. So that's good. Um, Another cool thing that sort of fell out of the Lambda expressions thing in Java 8 is also method references. So you can actually pass a reference to a method, and it sort of just becomes a closure. Right. And you could do that in Groovy, but it's like part of the language now. The compiler handles it. So that's, that's the difference between what Groovy gave you and what Java 8 gives you now. Is It's really something that the compiler handles from the get-go. Yeah, go ahead. Joel, did you have something to say about it? Or? Well, I was just going to say... You I mean, work with Ruby now a lot, too, so... This is a really needed language feature. Um, I, I actually get nervous when people come up, actually tweak Java too much, though, because one of Java's beauties is the fact that it is uh, very easy as a, like a learner language. It's easy conceptually. So um, eventually you have to ask yourself, how many things can you bolt on to a language before you turn it into something totally different? However... Um, you know, and you even look like things which are good, but like generics and things which make Java more complicated um, kind of eat away at that original reason why I think it's so popular. But I think this is a good feature. I think it's sorely needed, actually, um, to make it just a little bit lighter weight. I mean, I love closures in other languages. I just hope that it doesn't add too much to the complexity. And the other question I had was, when is this actually coming out? It looks like Java 8 is <laughs> coming out in March. Burn of, the non-believers. ETE. March of, March of 2014. we got to have someone at ETE cover this sucker. But yeah. I, I agree. It's pretty late to the game. It, yeah. You're and, right. And I'm wondering about the bytecode ramifications. I know the compiler is going to automatically turn this stuff into bytecode, much like a Scala does. It's um, all just tastier now. It's t <laughs> but I wonder what it's going to do. Is it going to speed up things for languages like Groovy? Can, can the Groovy developers now take advantage of the coded references to functions and things like that well, and make it's something that faster. actually came out in jdk well java 7 was the invoke dynamic yeah that was big so that okay. was big for groovy and the other dynamic languages that are run on the jvm oh okay because they would create so like know. they would create like lots of anonymous interclasses and stuff would get slow and and um closures actually in groovy could be very slow depending on yeah. on what you do so they really sped that up but i'm With not sure if this anyway. actually that's a good question though how does this help groovy and scala or does it Right, and I look at it, and it—I don't know what you both think about this, but I look at the—I look at the code that, that uh, Brian is showing here, and, and the examples, and I'm like, wouldn't it typically figure that Java has to be just a little bit more ugly to look at than a Ruby or a Groovy or something like that? Because it's Java, you know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, it is making it more elegant. I'm a little worried about Java developers who are less experienced getting a hold of this, 
and making everything uh, closure based in like one giant class with eighty five <laughs> closures and the, you know, dial it back, buddy, dial it back. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, read this paper. Uh, we'll have a link to it on our show notes page. You can get to our show notes uh, maybe on the download of your podcast uh, on your podcast player, but also through uh, emergingtech.cherrysolutions.com. Go to the podcast menu and pick up the podcast sixty one for the Dev News. All right, so that's uh, number one on our 900 items of goodness list. <laughs> uh, let's talk about re uh, functional reactive programming on the JVM. So, so this is something it. I'm. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, so this is something I'm pretty excited about. They uh, Netflix. First of all, you know, if you haven't taken a look, take a look at their engineering blog. It's awesome. They put tons and tons of material out there. Open source a lot of stuff. It's just a, a treasure trove of knowledge if you're interested in you know all the things and whether it's build engineering or software development or scalability, tons of stuff out there. I mean, anyway, so we've heard a lot about reactive programming a lot now in Scala and other things. TypeSafe is, you know, pushing it big time. Rx Java is something they just open sourced. It's basically a port of a thing called Rx.net. Now, yeah, you're probably like, oh my God, .net, what? But uh, it makes reactive programming a lot easier in Java. It allows you to basically perform a lot of asynchronous computations, but compose those asynchronous computations. So it's basically like taking uh, futures, if you're you know familiar with futures and executors and all that kind of stuff, and right. asynchronous results, but composing those together so you can chain things together well and still write clear code. For example, imagine you have a service in the Netflix, right? One call actually talks to like 10 other backend services. Yeah, you've got that, all these nested. Right, that do all these different things. Right. And, you know, if you try to write that code and wait for this, wait for that, do this, and try to sequence it, it gets really ugly. What this allows you to do is basically naturally write that code, and when things are available, they'll become available, and eventually the things get composed together and you get your result. But it allows you to write cohesive code in one place as if you're just writing normal business logic. So it's a good way to handle that new sort of asynchronous paradigm. Fantastic. And, yeah, it looks like a really good project. Yeah, I'm looking at the, the – they mentioned the blog entry that announces it on the tech blog, as you mentioned – um, and it just, it's a beautiful, uh, language, uh, def definition. Now I'm seeing it being run in closure, for example, or in groovy. Um, but, uh, I mean, definitely looks really nice. It looks like it's a, a very literate kind of interface to program to. Yeah. I mean, the examples they give are pretty cool because they're like real world examples. They tie it back to what they're actually doing at Netflix and it links to other articles that sort of lead you to how they got to this. And it's like, again, you really should check out this blog if you're just, you know, hardcore developers and you just love this stuff. And also because, you know, when you program in a reactive functional way, it will break these things up into a bunch of asynchronous calls, right? I mean, you're automatically taking advantage of a higher, higher scalability. Right. And if something can come back immediately, like if it's cached, it'll just come back immediately. But you don't have to actually take – you don't your code doesn't reflect that whether it's asynchronous or synchronous. It can handle both express the same way. And I guess another point around that is if you've, one of their examples is a simple composition example where they basically have a couple of different methods in a row. I suppose if the third one comes back, it doesn't have to you know wait for it to do the other two, right? It just, it's going to kind of sequence them if you know one by one by one logically, even though it might run them in different order, right? Which is and really cool. it sort of adds a little bit of a declarative programming style to to Java, mm -hmm. but it, it's actually very clear for this kind of stuff. Nice, okay. So that's functional reactive programming. That's the GitHub project from Netflix called RxJava. 
Uh, let's go in the JavaScript world for just a minute. Um, first of all, we talk about Angular a lot, uh, but the Angular Seed project uh, has its issues, right, Joel? Yeah, so I was at uh, Philly JS Developers uh, Users Group last night, and there was a really good speaker from, uh, he works at HBO, and he, was, he produced this project called uh, Angular Sprout. So he took Angular Seed, and he made it uh, basically a better example project, or a better project that you can just kind of clone and go. So he set up some directories and just made it like a nice way to get started with Angular and have your project set up correctly from the beginning, uh, at least according to you know his version of that. But it seems like a valuable project, and he was uh, talking about how his group moved from Flex, which is now dead, but had a very um, rich user kind of uh, you know, heavy front end kind of thing before a lot of these JavaScript frameworks and now moving to Angular, which is really uh, seems like a good um, fit if you're moving from Flex to something. It's nice, too, because it looks like it even has a built-in web server, like ready to go from Node. So, um, you know, you're all set to go. The unit tests are look, look like they're in the right locations. The end-to-end -end testing looks put together. So this is definitely something to check out. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Did he mention at all, like, so Flex has all these components and things out of the box Angular itself doesn't provide those UI components for them, but did, what do they use for that? Did they? Uh, he did not mention that. Okay. It was really just strictly on what Angular has okay. and about that, but I think it was just more the mental model and the controllers and binding and things okay. like that. It wasn't like it was a one-to-one, -one, right. but it's just if you knew this kind of model from Flex that Angular was not a huge leap. Yeah, um, and you can bolt any kind of UI to it, like you, you know, jQuery UI sure. or whatever. I think that the challenge with something like that is the – and this is where I'd like to see more information – is you know how jQuery UI has kind of their own little eventing model and routing model is how you put the two together. And I've seen several projects around that. So maybe at some point I'll do some research and bring that up too in a later dev news. There were actually some other people from RJ Metrics who were talking about Angular, and they use jQuery UI like resizable, or is that maybe just jQuery? But no, it's got to be UI. And they use some of those um, things, and they said Angular finds – if jQuery is there, it just kind of like lets – it uses jQuery. So right. they play nicely together in some way. Cool. Awesome. All right. Also in the JavaScript world, uh, I'm just going to use the word R because um, <laughs> I don't know if you read the article yet, but uh, the, and, and who, Joel, you brought this one up? J yeah. jQuery yeah. 111. Uh, 111 and 2.1 beta 1 are released. And the reason I said R is because they write the whole thing in pirate language because it's, <laughs> it's talked like a pirate day the day he did it. So, but beyond that, let's, sorry about that, Sujan. I think I injured Sujan. Um, uh, so uh, let's talk about the jQuery 1.11. Sure. So a lot of times, you know, we talk about the latest and greatest JavaScript frameworks, and uh, people say, um, you know, but they're but they're not for they don't have older support for browsers. So even at the Angular talk yesterday, um, the RJ Metrics people said they use it. They've had some trouble with uh, IE8, but they don't really care because they're just going to support IE8 nine and beyond. But like it, yes, it, which is totally cool. <laughs> Everyone but, should do that. You can't. So, so, I so I hate all the project that I you know work on. We can't do that because we have a lot of enterprise customers. You, wait, wait. You live in the real world. Yes. Uh, and there's a lot of enterprises are still on Windows XP, and that you was know, an assignment you took for IEA. some strange reason. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so it's nice to know that people are still looking out for us who uh, still have to uh, support older browsers. And and jQuery one one, uh, the jQuery one X branch still supports IE six, seven, and eight. Now I really do hope that nobody has to use IE six. But anyway. Um, there are some nice things that they're adding, and one of them is the asynchronous module definition. So require JS, you can actually load modules, uh, and jQuery is supporting that in this release. Oh, nice. They have performance improvements, and now they have support for Bower. So we talked about that, uh, dependency management for um, JavaScript. So basically, 
even if you still have to support uh, an older version of a browser, you can still use things like asynchronous module definition and Bower. And um, and that's pretty cool to hear that that we can still have nice things too. Yeah. And it also says that uh, there are no major changes to the API. It's just a uh, it's just wanted to internally support AMD and these other features. But really, if, as long as you got the one point nine or higher. You're good to go. So thanks, jQuery, for not leaving everybody behind who has to, uh, you know, kind of. We actually do have to support it as well. So I'm in the process of upgrading to one nine right now because I can't really go any farther than that. Mm. And by the way, the, the the quote of the week goes to the, the uh, line bug fixes. We keel hauled a few scurvy bugs since the last version. <laughs> There's a list down the way if you want to be known. And this morning I was listening to this. I have a little reader. Was that a pirate leprechaun? <laughs> Could have been. I was listening to this with, uh, with the the um, read readometer or whatever it is a reader app. So you know, I get in and I, I I turn on the water and I play the thing and it tries to say pirate with a computer voice that sounds like Google Maps and it was really hysterical how it could not do it at all. In fact, it called jQuery H query. I have no idea why. All right, next article. Um, so we're out of that world. Let's talk more iOS. So this is where all the Android people tune out. Uh, come back in about five, ten minutes. Uh, but uh, iOS, we got a lot of stuff in here. Starting with, there's some issues with iOS 7 with Safari. Uh, it looks like there are a fair number of little bugs that they've created. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, and, and apparently it's the most, from what these people are saying, that they've seen since they've seen releases of iOS. Um, so they're basically come down to like one, two, three, five, six, seven major problems. Joel, Joel did you want to jump in? Well, I, you know, so I got iOS 7, obviously, with a lot of other people who I have an iPhone 5. Uh, when I first got it, I didn't like it because everything looked like cartoons and was totally different. Um, now, actually, I do really like it once I got used to it. And Safari was one of the things that I didn't like at first because it's extremely minimalist. Um, but once you kind of get used to it, you know, do you really want to see a browser bar and some tabs, or do you just want to see content? So they did a good job, really, although it took me a little while to figure out how to use it, which sounds crazy, but um, everything sort of disappears from the screen when you're browsing content, so Safari just kind of fades into the background. And I think that's a great approach. I have noticed this version of iOS 7 being a little buggy. Um, basically, I had to reboot my phone once because all my phone calls got screwed up, and then I've, I've been fine since then. I, I guess I haven't noticed more. Like, to me, that's kind of par for the course whenever they come out with a new one. I expect maybe some minor bugs for until the first update. Um, but in general, it's been a really smooth I.O. Uh, I, you know, I like the From user experience. Yeah, I like the user experience. Right. And I haven't noticed anything personally with Safari. Um, it takes a little bit of getting used to. So let's run through a few of the things then. So, so they, they have an in a nutshell section, which is great for us podcast readers. Um, this is on mobilexweb.com. Um, and we'll put the link in the show notes, of course. Uh, so the UI changes they're talking about, it would make sense that the toolbar tint would be different just because the whole color scheme is different. Mm -hmm. um, there's problems with new full screen navigation from what they're saying. Um, new home screen icon sizes are different. Uh, no title usage on the iPhone, so it doesn't actually bring the title up, um, which is kind of interesting. And that makes sense for the fading out of the way kind of thing, getting away from it. Um, and potential, I'm not sure about the conflicts and new gestures. Um, Let's say HTML markup, they remove support for the input type of date time. So that just becomes a typo, a type in. But date time is something you've always had in the iPhone. You know, hmm. So it's kind of weird that goes away. Uh, the video tracks, uh, I guess there's some issues with video tracks there. Um, HTML5 APIs, they remove support for shared workers. Um, and let's see, they have a big problem with WebSQL using more than 5 mil, uh, megabytes. But I'm not sure that WebSQL is used by any of the browsers but Safari, I thought. Yeah, I don't know. Because that was a standard that was dropped, I thought, that there was the 
relational one, not enough of the browser vendors. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's yeah too much. So some of this might be yeah, some of this might be complete edge cases. The only other thing it says here is in our home screen web apps, um, several severe problems, and one of the notes is there's no alert support. Um, so you can't alert back to the home screen. Anyway, it may not mean anything. It might be, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a reaction from someone who goes in a very low level writing games in HTML, which seems crazy or something along those level lines. But uh, there are some question marks around what they've done. Uh, maybe they'll come up with a fix in the next uh, point release. Yeah, it's worth looking at. I mean, if you have a web app and you want it to look good in Safari, it's just if any of these gotchas happen to hit you. I doubt it will hit, like many of them will hit most sites, but. Well, if you're doing PhoneGap, yeah. you know, and then you're dealing with now I've got PhoneGap and I'm using HTML5, and now I've got to deal with these things for iOS. Yeah, just complicates their world a little bit. So if you're doing that, take a look at this article, uh, see if it affects you without being alarmist. Um, it's an alarm. Uh, so <laughs> you've had your hands on. You mentioned that. Um, what's this lock screen bug? So uh, you can actually. Um, so the lock screen, obviously, you're supposed to put in your password. But if you uh, manage to do this sequence, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, what is it? Um, I'm trying to remember <laughs> like stuff from my buttons. old, yeah, yeah. So my old Nintendo games. Up, down, I can't left, remember. Left. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mortal Kombat is what I want to say. So if you do a, a Mortal Kombat finishing move uh, with your <laughs> with your iPhone, you can actually get into some content beyond the lock screen. I think like uh, contacts. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not. It's a bug. I mean, it's a bad one, but I'm pretty sure that they'll fix that. And somebody obviously has to physically have your phone. To yeah, have so that's the issue. And yeah. who's going to let their phone lay around? Oh, maybe me. Um, sometimes. What, you don't actually physically attach it to your body like I do? No. Velcro. Okay. I'm going to get some Velcro surgically attached. Um, fingerprint scanner. Yeah, and I read this, too. This is hilarious. So you, technically, you can trick out the fingerprint scanner, but doesn't it take a lot of work to do? It does. It takes a lot of work. And the other thing is, so so you can't just like um, easily take a picture, like for instance, uh, of your fingerprint with another phone and like hold it up to this phone. Like you have to have certain high resolution, and they printed it in a certain way, and yes. then they smeared some junk on it. And yeah. so like it's possible, but isn't that still a hundred times more secure than a four digit pin, uh, yeah. which is probably your birth date, your wife's pin. birth date or one, one, one or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think it's still a lot more secure and, and um, both combined is great. You yeah. know, if you really have that much security issue, then, you know, it's the, the two factors, something you I, have. I think something, the point know. they were trying to make was that it, you know, it's not any more secure than existing fingerprint, you know, scanners on the market and it sort of sounded with apple when they you know when they came out with the event the the, the ios 7 thing in the the phone that they sort of marketed it that way right so no the same method has been used on a lot of other fingerprint scanners it's a well-known method you know those who have the energy and money to do it can do it so it's just it, they it's higher resolution so they had to create right. a higher resolution photo to trick this one than other ones but the other thing too is if somebody finds your phone, then they have to figure out what your fingerprint might want to be, you right. know, that kind of thing. So I still think this is a big the fingerprint scanner is a big win for quote unquote enterprise security. So the corporations would still rather you have to uh, put your fingerprint on there and you know, because they're really I oh, think yeah. this is Apple's push into businesses saying, hey, we're at least a little bit more secure than than these other phones. Yeah, with the whole bring your own device stuff now that everyone – all these companies now suddenly become service providers for their company, mm-hmm. you know, for their employees. Oh, you need web access, so here I'll have to serve your new device. Um, at least putting that in there makes it a little more safe. Right. Um, there's also to that end, there's this uh, other article on ZDNet, four privacy settings you should enable in iOS 7 immediately. Um, and so let's look through this. Uh, did I bookmark that? Or was that I you? did. Yeah, okay. no, it was good. It was pretty good though. Like the different things that, um, you maybe wouldn't necessarily think, you know, would be by default. So let's just, yeah, quickly glance. So at what one of were. them is what's that, uh, the system services turning on the status bar icon. 
Um, yeah, this is so you can know when um, applications want to uh, are tracking your location. Oh, and that's off by default. I yes. Okay. Yeah. So this this makes it more uh, obvious. I, I think they they want to simplify the user interface, but you want to know who's like tracking you, because that's really important. Right. And then speaking, if you're paranoid. Right. <laughs> speaking of performance, um, then the next one is in system services. Uh, there are uh, three things they recommend turning off. Uh, one is diagnostics and usage, which I'm sure is you know tracking everything you're doing and sending it off to Apple. Exactly. Fantastic. Location-based iAds. Do you really want to be bugged when you walk by a store? What are those? I've never heard of those. Bug. Do you want Apple sending your location to Walmart so they can send you an ad? Um, no thanks. No. And the other one, even worse, the frequent locations, which is the phone. Uh, Apple will store where you kind of are. I forget what is the purpose of that other than completely completely private, reaming your privacy. <laughs> do you think the, the private detective agency has yeah. a lobby at Apple and like yeah. we need a way to catch people who are cheating on their wives? Right. You know? Yeah, I'm actually forgetting what they even Our. use that for. Um, but it stores your most frequent locations. Like, yeah, like yeah, I'm not. I can't see how that's a good thing for you, except for targeting maybe for advertisers or something. Right now, the wow. next one they have in here uh, is uh, turning uh, resetting your. Advertising identifier, uh, unlike the UDID, which was uh, supported like GUID, so to speak, which would uh, tie a specific iOS device hardware to the user, um, this one doesn't have any device information, So, and it's also not permanent. So if you felt like you wanted to clear it out, in the advertising section, you could reset your advertising identifier. That's at least nice. I mean, And then they said turn on the do not track, which right. – you know, mm-hmm. hey, all these are smart. Um, I probably Apple has them all on because they all support their advertising. Sure, in, and in in some way, but um, but it's kind of novel that they let them be opted out. And maybe yeah. there's a law behind it, who knows, or regulation. But it's good that they're starting to let you opt out of these things. It is. It's not exactly easy. You can't go to one page and say just yeah. stop tracking me for everything, which would be nice. But yeah. but it's it is nice that they actually well your, da- nice, your data is still being broadcast everywhere because one oh, app, sure. one sure. app could take your data and then they get it and then they sort of give it out to others. So it is still happens but it's nice that they're thinking about it more and making it, it easier false, to configure yeah it gives us a nice false sense of security like i'm gonna jump ahead uh like down to the weekly uh cracking crypto update <laughs> let's let's jump into that because it kind of is organically into this whole privacy thing so um so there are two things you wanted to talk about here right yeah so this was actually i think one of the more significant i don't know intrusions that that have come out about the nsa i don't think it's making a lot of waves necessarily but um so rsa the security company who's owned by uh, emc tells their customers to to for their some of their products including this be safe product basically are using a random number generator that has been totally owned by the uh the NSA. So, but what the reason that this is significant is so uh, NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, I think is the, the acronym. But they come out with stuff like I think, don't they? The ones who, who endorse standards like AES or encryption or something. Yeah. yeah. So this is like a standards body, right, from the government, and it's supposed to you know define things for industry that are proven to be good. And so they actually approved this random number generator and said, yeah, this is good. Except there was one problem: the NSA actually t- put a backdoor in that totally crippled this thing, so that they could they could basically crack things that use it so you know it's one thing if you break into something but it's another thing if you say to everybody hey this is good oh, n- oh wait but no, this but, is the but, standard but, use yeah, it you should use and it. it's got a backdoor so, so is there a backdoor for aes you know what i mean like so oh, wow and and they kind of go in it so it's really pretty bad now rsa is is basically because it was the standard made it i guess the default in some of their products you know and so now you've got these these products it's not really rsa's fault although you know they're supposed to be one person said well these guys are supposed to be security experts how did they not know this thing 
thing was so crippled. Uh, and apparently there was some controversy when um, this particular standard was published. They said that among like real whatever, crypto people, they said use it, but they didn't publish a proof. So, uh, because they couldn't publish a proof because the thing was absolutely totally broken. So <laughs> I'm not sure how the standard got rammed through. There was some suspicion in like people who actually know better, but for whatever reason, it just, you know, here RSA is used at companies all across America and, um, and people who use the standard now, now it comes out that, that this is just totally owned by the NSA. This, this is really scary. I mean, if you yeah, really it, think about it, it's just like yeah, what on, else has backdoors? Exactly. Put on your tinfoil helmets because this will definitely um, you know, give credence to the fact that the government is trying to actively crack into your stuff. So don't even start me on we buy all our chips uh, that are made uh, in other countries who want to spy on us. So what on earth really is in the silicon wafer? You can catch Joel in the next edition of No Agenda with uh, <laughs> John C. Dvorak and Adam Curry. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be doing our, uh, our next really, report uh, overseas at a uh, chip manufacturing plant where we try to find out where they insert the back doors. Oh, come on. <laughs> Hold on. Ah, oh, never mind. I have my sound effects and they're not playing. I had the sand, sad trombone sound effect. Oh, well. Watch it. will play in the next article. All right. So let's move on then. Um Let's go back up and let's cover, uh, let's see, um, Valve announces SteamOS. SteamOS? Uh, Steam's a gaming platform, but does that mean they're going to have some sort of device that runs Steam natively? Yeah, hold on to your Xboxes. So Xbox and Sony have the you know the new devices coming out soon. They're new, but Steam just said that they're going to release a Linux-based platform for free. So developers, so you can put it in your own hardware. Hardware manufacturers can now you know make their own Steam gaming platform, and it is um, basically optimized to play like video games on large screens, like TVs and stuff like that. So. It, Basically, roll your own Xbox. Find that old Linux box in your basement. Throw this baby on there, and um, pretty interesting. Like, There's a bunch of games that it already like that Steam OS already supports. Get out. Yeah, this is interesting. And awesome. if and if you're like Microsoft or Sony, like this, some people said this is probably ahead of its time. So and Steam's never done um, any kind of like consumer electronics, so they probably have some trip. You know, they'll probably trip in a few places. But oh, yeah. but it definitely could be a disruption to this uh, game console monopoly. Sure. I can't wait because I've, I just took my son's, uh, what was it, a 550 Ti uh, NVIDIA graphics card out to give him a higher-end one, and I'm holding this thing. It's like you know air-cooled and everything. I'm like, oh, if I just build a Linux box around this thing and put Steam on it. <laughs> there you go. That's my plan. All right, cool. Steam OS. So basically Linux-based with all their cool APIs on top and their own user interface. And optimized for, for gaming for, and for uh, like TV you know, yeah. output. Yeah, HDMI or was it HDMI output and put it in your TV. Awesome. Okay. Is that everything for the week? I think it is, isn't it? And we have a – we want to do a shout-out. Did we mention uh, Heidi's uh, book? Yeah, Heidi Utley, uh, former charioteer, uh, she uh, has a participation in a book on OS iOS 7 – uh, and that is all about uh, upcoming iOS 7 features for developers who've already worked on something else. Um, so Heidi Utley, Michael Ang, Josh Brown, and Kuratepi, Doran Katz, and Cody Ray. Uh, and it looks like it's kind of a, either self-published or um, published by a company called Bleeding Edge Press. So uh, that's coming out. Actually, they think it's coming out September 20th. That's not the date. Uh, but it will be out soon. So you can get a, probably an e-copy of that now. And she wrote... I think one of the articles in that one of the sections. So, cool. 
All right, I think that'll do it then. So that is the developer news for Wednesday, September 25th, uh, 2013. Again, episode 61. Uh, if you want to subscribe to our podcast, please head over to emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. Go to the podcast links and go ahead and go crazy. There's the dev news, which you're listening to. There's the emerging tech uh, ta- tech cast, if I can say it properly, which is interviews uh, from technical perspective. And we also have the uh, Business of Technology podcast as well uh, for people that are less technical and more into the business side of things. Uh, also, we keep publishing. In fact, I'm going to publish another uh, ETE screencast this week. I don't remember exactly which one, but there's one in the queue. So you can see all the screencasts from our last couple shows. Excellent. Um, yeah, probably like 60 of them at this point. We've got thousands and thousands of downloads of those. Uh, and they're really valuable because there are a lot of major open source movers and shakers. And again, that's at the screencast section of uh, emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. And that's pretty much it. So for the TechCast, I'm sorry for the dev news. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. And I'm Joel Confino. Make it a good week. This show, episode 61, is available on our Emerging Technologies pages at emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. Click on the podcast link or use the short URL, emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. You can also subscribe via iTunes. Just search for Chariot Dev News. While you're there, you can browse our interview podcasts, the tech-driven tech casts, and our new business-focused Business of Technology podcast. And browse screencasts from our 2012 and 2013 Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conferences, as well as our Science of Big Data show from December of 2012. Emerging technology resources from Chariot Solutions. That's emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. For the Dev News, I'm Ken Rimple. <laughs>